Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 46, the one about being a better leader, empathy over audio, humorology, and the film Snatch. Let's get on with the show. Welcome everyone to another episode of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. As always, we're here to talk about the latest news, tech, content and wisdom from the world of marketing. And as always, my co-host is a man on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. Please welcome Mr. Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you very much. And once again, a pleasure to spend more time with the man who's also on the mission to keep marketing simple the voice of the marketing and finance podcast and the host of the rocksville video series i give you monsieur roger edwards <laughs> oh thank you so much pascal and here we are with episode 46 46 it's it's incredible how fast the time is going but listen thank you so much everybody for watching and listening to two geeks in the marketing podcast we really do appreciate you taking the time to listening to what can be quite long episodes and and we offer no apology for the length of the episodes because we just enjoy talking about marketing and films of course <laughs> so much so pascal shall we get straight into it shall we go into the news round Now, during a Euro 2020 press conference, Cristiano Ronaldo removed two bottles of Coca-Cola and replaced them with a bottle of water. This little act led to a $4 billion fall in the share price of the drinks company. Copperberg, Grolsch and Nivea have pulled their advertisement from news broadcast channel GB News. The boycott was instigated by a social media campaign group Stop Funding Hate, which urged brands to snub news organisations that provoke that promote divisive views. Wow, well, YouTube is banning ads for gambling, alcohol, and prescription drugs, as well as political and election-focused advertising from the top of its homepage. And Chinese telecommunications brand Huawei has revealed that the British government's decision to ban it from the country's 5G network prompted a 27.5% drop in turnover for the company's UK subsidiary during the year to the end of December. While Stella Artois, the famous beer brand, has joined a growing craze among celebrity athletes for virtual horse racing, Roger, by auctioning <laughs> off 50 rare horses to coincide with the start of the esports summer season. Social networks need to do more to stop fake reviews, Amazon says. The shopping site said it stopped more than 200 million suspected fake reviews last year, but cannot control those facilitated on social media. Well, information about Windows 11, the new Microsoft operating system, has been leaked on the internet weeks before its official announcement at the What's Next for Windows event on June the 24th. And finally, Spotify launches a clubhouse competitor called The Green Room, which will let creators record live chats and turn them into podcasts. So, yeah, some, some really good and interesting news there, Pascal. Do you know, I, I'm convinced that I can remember Windows saying that Windows 10 would be the final version of Windows, and they'd just basically update that as time went by. But obviously, it they've decided to launch a whole new version Windows 11, which we'll, we'll have to see what that looks like. Now, I was going to ask you about the Euro 2020 mm. press conference. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo uh, removing two bottles of Coke and replacing them with water, causing the brand to lose 
at share price. Now, interestingly enough, I was involved in another event yesterday, Pascal, and this very news item was discussed. And the view was that actually people like Ronaldo should be taking this sort of stand to encourage people to be more healthy, to drink better things, to eat better things. Um, but I don't know, you know, it, what do you think? Well, I kind of read it several times. In fact, and then I went online to read you know, the, the details. And this is a, um, a, a, a marketing fiasco on two levels. Number one, yes, Coca-Cola is the official sponsor of Euro 2020, but they are not sponsoring Cristiano Ronaldo. And yes. if you think about the layout of the press conference room and you know, the way which it was going to be filmed and framed, if you had a picture or video file of Cristiano Ronaldo sat with two bottles of Cokes in front of him, it could actually suggest that is uh, supported by or at least advocating the, uh, you know, the, the use of, of the drinks. So that's number one. So as a marketing standpoint, it, it was a bit of a failure on the organizers. And number two, talk about accidental influencer marketing, because I think Cristiano Ronaldo said, uh, almost briefly, no doubt by his agent, she can't be seen sat next to these two bottles. So um, if the um, organizers don't remove them, you remove them. But then he kind of went further by brandishing the bottle of water. I don't know whether he did show the brand and said aqua, you know, in Spanish, um, for water. And certainly this whole tsunami of reaction led to this 4 billion uh, fall. Now, when you read the small print, that's only 1.6% of the mm -hmm. overall value and turnover of the company. So I don't think it was a major dent, but it's the lasting effect of the PR that is going to be you know, making the news headlines and be first on the Google searches and more for the next weeks and months. Yeah, I, I'm sure I also read, though, that the bottles of water that he pointed to were also manufactured by Coca-Cola. So <laughs> I, I guess that uh, he, was re he was removing one Coke brand and, and replacing it with another. But it, it's, it's again, we hear all this stuff about cancel culture at the moment and, and influencer marketing. We've, we've, we've had a bit of a pop at that on the podcast so many times mm. and I, I don't know I, we, we won't know the ins and outs of this about who sponsored what and what the actual deals were and I can understand yes he perhaps doesn't want to be associated with Coca-Cola but maybe they should have sorted it out before the the uh, filming started rather than actually make yeah, it into yeah. a, a big issue. Absolutely. That's my, that's my point, really. You, you take a few, you know, you, you're the organizer, you stand back and look at risk management, what could potentially happen. And it, I just thought it was a, a bit a bit of a clumsy form of marketing, plonking bottles on the, on the table like this. And I think there's better ways to showcase your product. Absolutely right. So looking at social networks needing to do more, to stop fake reviews. This one caught my attention, Pascal, um, because I'd read recently, and, and, and this is pertinent to me having written Cats, Mats and Marketing Plans in the, in the last year or so, that quite a lot of authors are constantly having to appeal to Amazon to get one-star reviews taken down because there's almost like a network of people going on deliberately mm -hmm. leaving one-star reviews for competitor authors in order to reduce their rankings in some of the uh, 
bestseller charts. And, and of course, you would expect that this sort of thing goes on, but perhaps it's a lot more rife than I actually realised. And certainly to the tune of 200 million fake reviews is, is actually quite staggering. But as they say, they can't do anything about those that are effectively coming in via social media. I just felt that the tone was a little... Um uh, I was perplexed by the tone, should I say, because mm -hmm. uh, we can't we can't suggest that Amazon have got their house in order just yet. And mm. I always don't. I mean, you and I will know, uh, you know, companies and traders who've complained and and trying to contact Amazon for weeks and months to remove fake reviews or to even be told why is my product demoted? I don't understand. So mm. I think if they'd said we as a kind of a global network of platforms and more need to work together to make it better, I would have, have, have more sympathy. But to say, well, we are doing a good job, now your turn. I just think that uh, the tone was, was a bit off, but a principle uh, I would agree with. And indeed, for many of my customers, that's the reason why they were really turned off by the Google My Business, you know, the Google Maps um, feature, because of all the fake reviews and complaints that were from either anonymous sources, which I think is where the problem lies, as well as uh, being false. Yeah, I have to say, you're right. Amazon needs to get its house in order, particularly on its uh, customer service. I have to say that <laughs> whilst I was going through the publishing process for my book, there were a number of things that I needed to get in touch with Amazon about because there was... I felt that the um, test pressing, the test printings of the book were slightly out of alignment. And honestly, trying to get to speak to a real person uh, and to actually get over the, the problem was next to impossible. And the way that they reply to emails and you can't then reply back to the email, you effectively go right back in with the um, initial contact form, you end up talking to four, five, six dis different people every time. And nobody knows the history of the issue. Mm. And it, you just go round and round and round. And in the end, you know, I just thought, do you know what? I cannot be bothered with this anymore. I've wasted more than a whole couple of days just trying to get to speak to somebody in Amazon. It was a nightmare. So yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> they need to get their house in order on their customer service. And, and the last one that I wanted to mentioned today was let, let's talk about another clubhouse competitor um, I nearly let this one go but I thought it was quite interesting again Spotify uh, one of the criticisms one of the many criticisms that people had of the the original clubhouse was that of course the conversations disappear as soon as the room closes down and you know you might have hours worth of what could have been incredibly good content, mm. which just disappears and will never, ever be seen again. Now, Twitter record their spaces and they keep them for a couple of days, but they only do that in case there's somebody um, complaining about something bad that happened within the, within the space. But effectively what Spotify doing here is record letting you record it so that you can then turn it into a podcast so it feels to me that this is adding to spotify's almost push into the podcasting space i i would agree um i know there's been a few weeks since we, we mentioned clubhouse so here they are back again but uh, that was the reason why I'd be looking at Twitter spaces but also looking at a way to record the conversation because 
you have to repurpose you have to extend its value beyond the the live session um i'm excited about it i mean spotify i've done a lot of good things i made right decisions in and around podcasting we know that they also own um anchor.fm so that would be also another way for you to record and add music from spotify there's so very very interesting uh, things happening at spotify and uh, for you and i as consultants and trainers what a surprise that we may end up having to recommend that people start using Spotify for their audio marketing. That's interesting, isn't it? Because again, Spotify has just always been this. It's that music app, mm-hmm, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's what you you sell all your old CDs and you start listening to Spotify. <laughs> now it's becoming a real quality content creation suite. So once again, Pascal, some great news items coming out here. And we could talk about all of them, but we do have time pressing upon us so shall we move on to one of the best parts of the show the content spotlights in the content spotlight section of the show pascal and i bring to the table an item of content it could be an article podcast video something that's caught our attention in the recent weeks and we dive into it in a bit of detail so pascal what have you got for us today so, Roger, I'm not sure whether you've been keeping track of the show notes where we prepare you know, much, uh, all the episodes for Two Gigs Marketing Podcast, but you may notice that this is not the article that I chose a couple of days ago. This article I discovered on my news app called Flipboard. I can't do without Flipboard. And this is a title for you. You can't show empathy over email. Business leaders turn to internal podcasts to stay connected with their workforce. And whilst I I was very happy with with my initial choice, this one was so timely because I just had a conversation with a client of mine about launching a what we call an in-house podcast. So this article was written by Jessica Davis, who is the UK editor of DGDay.com, a media and news company that not only do they look at news about marketing and and tech, they also have a podcast, they organize events, and they have a publishing arm. So quite a a, um, interesting you know, venue online for you to keep track of what's happening. But the, the again, the title, but then the article was really, really insightful. Now, two reasons why I'm happy with my newer selection. Firstly, it's a wonderful example about how to write an article. So if you're interested, look at the um, the structure, look at the setup, you know, how the subject is being approached, look at the conclusion and everything in between. It's really quite interesting from a style point of view. But then let's look into the content, the side of business leaders returning to audio to stay in touch with their workforce so the the kind of premise is that you know usually maintaining a strong and positive work culture but also keeping employees emotionally engaged and motivated is difficult at the best of times roger but then add on to that the pandemic and you have potentially a communications crisis where people are working remotely everything that comes with it so what the article is kind of suggesting is that, if not already, you need a change in leadership style, which has more empathy and more transparency. And what they are arguing is that the kind of still to this day old-fashioned use of the quarterly e-newsletter just won't do it anymore. So before I move on to tell you more about the content, I must ask you, Roger, have you had the pleasure of creating quarterly newsletters in your previous lives? Um, Actually, it's funny, the last big corporate that I worked for, um, 
was already harnessing this sort of technique to communicate with its staff. Uh, so maybe it was ahead of the t- ahead of its time. Now, when I was working there, I didn't particularly feel like that. It was called the Cascade, which I hated the title of, and the idea being that the messages cascaded down from the CEO. So the initial version of the Cascade was the CEO talking to the senior managers, who then did another Cascade down to the people below. And it was all recorded on video and audio and then people would be given the choice of actually attending the next version in person to watch the video listen to the audio or just watch it on their their pcs at their desks and i think most people actually opted to stay at their desks and either pretend to watch it or pretend to listen to it i don't know what (laughs) but it, it it at least it wasn't an email and and yeah you're absolutely right um i think You've got to be so careful how you word emails, haven't you? I mean, you can annoy people inadvertently by using the wrong tense or the wrong structure or just the wrong words. Uh, Whereas real face-to-face, it's harder to be mean to people when you actually have to be looking at them in the eyes when you're talking. Yeah. Now, I mean, for me, I've done my fair share of quarterly newsletters across my life as an employee, and they were a pain just to get the news out of people. It was a pain to produce, it was a pain to distribute, and they never had the impact or the desired effect from from the leaders. So so this article is perhaps not saying you should do away with the quarterly newsletter, but what they're saying is that there is a limit to what the written word, to your point, Roger, can convey at the time where people need to feel more connected and feel more included as we work more remotely. And bear in mind the recent conversation, Roger, as we perhaps approach towards a hybrid working practices. So the article then move on to giving examples of the audio uh, content. So you have, for example, sales team leaders, and they've switched from Zoom meetings to a short podcast to give people an update. You have the onboarding of new employees where you have welcome messages and more from staff that some of the new employees may not meet for quite some time. You have people who are also invited from externally, external guests giving insights and giving a bit of tutorials to stimulate what's happening. You even have, of course, a CEO being interviewed to share their career progress. And then you have the product team describing the new product features or service features so that the customer-facing staff can convey that message to the customers, but all done so that people can listen to it as, as a podcast. And what I like about it and the other examples you'll see in this article is that the majority of the podcasts, in the podcast, are not produced by the leaders, but they are produced by team members working mm-hmm. at the lower echelons. And therefore, they're also given the freedom to have fun with it, which I think is important. So some of them are mixing current affairs, pop culture, music, film maybe, as well as the news about the business. And they have different styles and different voices. They even have names for them. So you have a company um, where they have the virtual water cooler because they know that most of the conversations are happening in around the coffee machine or the water cooler. Um, and the article really make a strong case for this idea of why don't you try that for a while because we need to, to all of us as human beings that, that, that sense of connection and belonging. And there's something very intimate, as you know, Roger, about consuming audio and listening to it, even though maybe doing something else. The article finishes with some very interesting stats about the impact of the pandemic on one's morale and motivation, sense of belonging, but also the and flips it by saying, well, this is the positive outcome of using internal podcast. 
I'm going to close this kind of quick summary and encourage everybody to follow the link below to read the article. You'll see a superb style format, but also great content with a quote from one of the interviewees for, for this article, the CMO of WorkVivo, who is actually a platform and solution to engage a um, staff on uh, working in remote locations. So this is um, the, the quote, the core problem with regard to what's happening right now is a lack of meaningful connections, meaningful bonds and relationships, the kind that are formed in an office environment or bumping this to, into the CEO or senior team members in a parking lot and getting a pat on the back for a job well done. Yeah. yeah. So here we are. Internal podcast, which can be used for this, but then I want to extend this reaction and your comments about should it be also part of maybe extending um, event experience? Could it be used for so many different ways? But I like this idea of for your ears only podcast as opposed to when people think of podcast, which is more of a public, uh, yeah, public listening. Yeah, I, I when I was um, uh, managing director of um, of Bright Grey and Scottish Provident many years ago, I was very into the senior management team always being visible. So we used to do um, a weekly, we used to call it team talk, where we used to get everybody together and the senior managers would be there in person. And then quarterly we would do a bigger event, um, a sort of town hall type thing they tend to call them these days. Uh, although that's a terminology I'm not particularly keen on. Um, but I suppose now that we're in this this new world of virtual and, and many businesses aren't all congregated in one place you just don't have the staff on the same site then some sort of digital alternative is absolutely essential but then you think about it you know is video the best route or is audio and again you know we talked about clubhouse we've talked about podcasts you can't get away from the fact that there's something quite intimate about audio only you know plugging in your headphones, you're still getting close to the people who are talking. And maybe that is the advantage of an audio podcast, is it has that feeling of intimacy that maybe even video doesn't have. And maybe that's where, if you've got a good person who is good at putting a message across audibly, then maybe there is that element of empathy that, that will strengthen the, the team spirit. The other thing that I've just realized listening to you is remembering the, my work as a video producer is I cannot imagine that for many people audio would be less of putting in scary either as a host or as a guest because you know I've been there where the person you want to interview or the person that is part of the panel discussion it just really a little nervous about being seen actually oddly more than heard and I wonder whether also it removes that barrier and makes actually the content production just smoother and more enjoyable for all. Yeah, I think you're right. So, Pascal, we say this on a number of occasions <laughs> that we don't collaborate in advance on our content spotlights. We do not. We, do, we don't. And honestly, listeners and viewers, we genuinely don't. And yet it staggers me that frequently – and it's going to happen again today, we seem to home in on similar topics and similar ideas. And my content spotlight this week is an article, again, that I've found in Inc. 
online magazine, INC, as in as opposed to INK. And the heading of the article is, if you say these five phrases often, you're a better leader than you think. Okay. And using them regularly will result in an increase in trust. And, and that's pretty much building upon what your piece of content has, has been talking about. It's all about how can the people who lead organizations communicate better and be better leaders rather than just authoritarian managers giving out orders, not having empathy, not having the human touch. And and again, um, as is quite common with my recent content spotlights, it is a it's an article. It's not a very long article. Maybe at the moment I'm homing in on uh, on smaller uh, bite-sized pieces of content. But great article by Marcel Schwantes. I think I've spelt that, uh, I've pronounced that right. I hope I have. But let me just talk you through. These are the things that he's saying that if you are a empathetic leader if you do have the human touch then these are the sort of things that you'll find yourself saying so for example we couldn't have pulled off this project without your help so notice the we couldn't Mm -hmm. i.e the collective we the business and without your help so immediately you've got that connection Um, whereas you know quite a lot of business leaders almost like take the credit for it all themselves you know you would think they'd done it all on their own and it's just a subtle use of language isn't it pascal but that that really does really does create that empathetic link with the employee here's another one i could use your advice on what to do in this situation nice wow i mean i can remember so many times you know, going in and sitting with my senior manager or my director when I was working in big corporate. And it's almost maybe it's just something that was drummed into that generation of people. You can't admit that you don't know the answer. And, you know, the fact that they would call you in and say, do you know, I don't know the answer to this. Can you help me out? It would just never happen. You know, they, they would they would probably fail rather than admit that they didn't know, or at least they'd They'd pretend they knew and then they go away and look it up and then they come back and, again, show off their wonderful amount of knowledge. But just listen to that sentence. I could use your advice on what to do in this situation. Number three, and this is just beautiful, what can I do to help? What can I do to help? Uh, and and you know, as consultants, Pascal, you and I are saying these phrases quite a lot because that's how we work, and we are oft, often here to help people to reach their goals, to create strategies and everything. But sometimes you just don't get this from the leaders of corporates. Um, number four, that was clearly my mistake. Wow, again, there's so much humanity <laughs> in that. And again were conditioned almost on a daily basis especially you know you hear it this from politicians they never ever admit mistakes do they in fact you know i'm I'm always saying that politics is the great example of how to use passive language to effectively dodge responsibility they'll say things like mistakes were made but when you use a passive language like that it implies that the mistake were made by other people as opposed to saying we made mistakes whereas this guy is saying that was clearly my mistake 
And the last one, number five, and again, this is beautifully simple. And I cannot recall many occasions where I've heard bosses in corporates say this. I don't know. I don't know. But just think how many issues and problems could be solved if people were just honest, put their hands up and say, do you know what? I don't know. Let's work it out together. And, and, and actually, Pascal, that's pretty much it. The article is nice and short. It's punchy. You're going to be able to read it in a minute and a half. It's not not long. But wow, those five phrases to me, you almost feel that people should be tattooing them on their forehead <laughs> or onto their onto their wrist or something like that. What do you think? What is delightful is as I'm listening to you, I'm literally having this kind of uh, flashbacks of my life as an employee, and then more recently, uh, of course, as a consultant. So, uh, I mean, I started my career in marketing in the mid-90s. It's a bit scary that I can't even give you the year anymore, Roger. So, you know, memory is failing, but I'm going to say mid-90s, 94, 95, I reckon. And as I'm listening to you, I feel very fortunate that I've had bosses like this. I feel very fortunate that my very first boss, a man called Andy Tidy, showed me the way of being a leader and a boss, and he had all these wonderful qualities. Uh, interestingly, then years later, I had some, let's say, uh, not as good uh, team leaders and, and bosses. So it's also nice to be able to contrast. And, and with age, you kind of forgive and forget, you know, the, the, the kind of mistakes and so on. But even more recently, when I, when I was helping one of my clients and joined them on a full-time occupation, a company called UMI, and what you've just listed, I observed and witnessed with delight during the, the, the senior management team meetings and, and board meetings. So th there's two ways which I would, I would use that almost. I would say to employees, read this article and realize how lucky you are to have a great leader because you, you'll be able to use that as a barometer. But also, sadly, if you're not, uh, you don't have the pleasure of good, you know, kind of human-centered leadership, don't be afraid to start to think about moving on because, you know, life is too short and a career should be built by being a company of people that are true, true inspiration. But isn't that funny that it's also pretty damn simple though, isn't it? It is. And again, it, it comes back to all what we say a lot on this show. Simplicity wins, mm -hmm. but simplicity is very hard to do. And that's why so many things end up being complicated. And, you know, again, the the fact that you and I have picked a similar topic this week is is fabulous. But I think we can never, ever underestimate the power of empathy and the power of having that human touch. Be more human, I think Mark Schaefer may have once said. Uh, and, you know, you can make your relationships with your staff so much more powerful and so much lead to more success if you actually simplify it and make it human. I think for me, the uh, sorry to interrupt, Roger. The uh, you know, th there's been a lot of uh, a lot said about the pandemic, and it's linked to digital transformation, which yeah. uh, has some merit. But I think we should also say that the pandemic has really accelerated the humanization of the world of work, um, yes. which was already it was already there. With the young generation of leaders and, and team leaders. Um, but back to your point, we do not use the same sources of news and information when we choose the content spotlight. 
right. Uh, we don't, you know, we have different habits, we have different haps and so on. And it just is very intriguing to me in, in a good way that time and time again, we have something very similar because ultimately we are the mirror of, of the mood and mindset of, you know, the, the world of business uh, at large. And clearly there's something happening out there for the subject to be making the headlines again. Yeah, absolutely. So great content spotlights once again. So thanks for that, Pascal. Shall we move on now? And let's talk about the latest marketing tech and apps. In this section of the show, Pascal and I bring to the table the latest marketing apps and platforms that have caught our attention, things that will enrich our business lives and make us more productive and maybe make us more healthy. So Pascal, what have you discovered this week? So this is actually the result of a research project I kind of gave myself a week or so ago. It's all to do with um, planning my new video tutorials and video content, but also I've been invited a few times to do some kind of how-to guides, you know, how to use a platform, how to maybe use Spotify in future to do podcasting and the likes. And within that, I need to therefore record my screen and do a show and tell about how to use the different bells and whistles of a platform. Now, I've been an attendee of those tutorials. Indeed, like you have been watching a lot of video tutorials, but sometimes it's actually quite hard to keep track of what the other person is doing. Sometimes the screen is just too detailed or sometimes we can't quite make out the different fills and boxes and ticks that they are doing. So I'll be looking at uh, apps that can allow me to highlight the mouse more, but also to zoom into the area where I'm working on the different platforms. So um, that's been essentially what I've been doing because crazily, um, I'm already planning the next iteration of the content marketing studio for September, but try and be a good boy and plan in advance. <laughs> so my research is, I wouldn't say it's complete because as ever, the more you look, the more you find, but I give myself a, a deadline and say, by this date, you'll have a shortlist and then you start to use them. And if you outgrow those apps, you can move on to doing more research, which I think is very good advice for viewers and listeners because you could spend days, indeed weeks, but you have to make a decision eventually. So what I tend to do, which is the advice I give my customers, I give myself a time budget, Roger. So I say, this is your time budget for the research, and by the end of which you'll make a decision. So I've got one option for Mac users, and I've got one option for Windows users which soon will have to go on to Windows 11. I forgot to tease you about that one, Roger, earlier. <laughs> so for the Mac user, I've got something called Mouse Pose, which is um, portmanteau yet again, Roger, between yes. Matt and Expose from a company called Boinks. And it's there's a free version, there's a chargeable version. They're only asking for like £10 a year. And it will highlight your mouse as a, as a pointer. It will also uh, shade the area that you don't want to show. So if you click on the, on the box, for example, if you want to highlight a particular part of a website or an application, to make it even easier to understand what you do, it would you know, kind of make the whole area around it shaded. You can zoom in, you can do all sorts of things, um, which is really quite nice. So Mouse Pose uh, is for Mac users. For Windows users, you've got a pointer focus, point of focus by a company called ETUS, which stands for Easy to Use Software, ETUS. <laughs> and what they've done is something very similar, whereby yeah, the mouse can be a bit bigger or the design can be changed. You can highlight what you're doing with a little halo effect. You can zoom in and out and, and make simply your, your tutorial, your step-by-step -step guide 
just a bit clearer, just a bit more interesting to follow along, and and also you know will require little to no editing. So these are the two options. Just before I pass on to you, Roger, one thing I did learn through my research is surprisingly there are already potentially some features you can use within your own computer, whether it's a Mac or a, a Windows PC. Do actually investigate because sometimes uh, as part of the you know, where you get different packages, there are versions of the mouse highlighter or cursor highlighter. So that's one thing to look into. But also, if you are using a screen recording app, no matter what it is, whether it's a browser extension or a third-party software, they sometimes have also tucked away that kind of mouse highlighter function that you're looking for. So perhaps you should begin there. And if you're not liking what you see, then do consider mouse pose for the Mac users and point of focus for Windows users. This is really funny, actually, Pascal. Yesterday, uh, I had to record a Zoom call for uh, which was actually going to be put out as a YouTube video later. And, and as we know, the the video quality of Zoom can be a bit hit and miss. Mm -hmm. And um, so, what I have to do is I have to use um, OBS Studio to effectively record the screen in 4K and then synchronize the audio from Zoom with the better quality video. But the problem with OBS is it will record everything that's on the screen. That includes me moving the mouse up to change <laughs> it to gallery view or moving the mouse up to to, to click on the mute button. Uh, so <laughs> I had to go looking for the functionality within OBS Studio to actually get rid of the mouse cursor uh, <laughs> from the recording. So it just goes to show that while some people might want that, other people have reasons why they want to take it away. My uh, my apps this week, I totally found this all by accident. Now, I've talked about an app I use on the show before. It's called Day One, and it's like mm. a journaling app. And I've been using this now for about five years. And what I love about it is that every day it tells me what I did on this day over the last five years. And it just made me curious to think about other journaling apps but then i remembered a brand called moleskin uh, now moleskin traditionally put together actual physical journals you know ones that you can write in with pens remember those i do and i always remember seeing these moleskin journals in airports or in train stations and they're really nice really really well produced and they always have a very attractive leather cover or as the name would suggest us made out of some sort of uh, skin or something like that and they're very expensive you know these journals which effectively are just a, a notebook with a leather cover you know you can be talking about 10 to 15 pounds to buy one of these so I've never really felt the need to buy a very expensive notebook um, along those lines. Uh, but it made me think about, oh, I wonder whether Moleskin have done anything digital. So I went on, and of course they have. And Moleskin have created, uh, uh, there's about five apps in the suite, but the two that caught my attention are Moleskin Time Page and Moleskin Journey. And Time Page is effectively a calendar type of app. So it will, it will, 
do your schedule for you. But what I really like about it is that they've put a lot of work into integrating the features that you might have on your iPhone or your Android device, like the weather um, thing, perhaps, or even the step measurement that you have on the health app on the iPhone. So, for example, if you put into the time page that you've got a meeting, so I've got a meeting on at the other end of Princess Street, say in Edinburgh, it will work out for me based upon steps that people have taken not just me but if the if the data shared it will work out how long it would take me to walk from edinburgh waverley station to the other end of princess street and it will build that walking time on either side of the uh, meeting which i thought was quite clever it will also build in what the weather's going to be like so if it's down if it's a downpour you might want to get a taxi or something like that so they've really done some really interesting trickery and integrated stuff the second one is called moleskin journey which is a similar sort of app but it's more orientated towards people who are going on trips whether that's hot um, holidays or business trips and it does similar things like I've already described it includes the weather it'll try to work out how long it'll take you to get from point a to point b um, it'll integrate into the app reviews from hotels um, like hotels.com or booking.com so I, I thought this is real interesting stuff and and the way that they've integrated everything together but here's the thing each of these apps is very expensive <laughs> and and uh you know you, you're talking about the annual char charge is something like 49 quid 50 quid effectively uh so in the same way as you're going to pay a lot of money for that uh, journal you can hold in your hand because it's got that lovely leather cover these apps are very clever but you're also going to pay a price for them and i guess what i like about this is that moleskin are one of the brands that can get away with being expensive, you know, reassuringly expensive, as they used to say about Stella Artois. And they've built a brand around quality. And if you want that quality, then you're going to have to pay for it. I like as well the, the, the evolution from a physical item to a digital and how they could have fallen into the trap of making a online version of the physical item, which is essentially just a pages that you could mm -hmm. fill in, mm -hmm. a la, you know, kind of um, Google Jamboard or Google Keep, but they've done something extra and almost merging in uh, additional text and information. Uh, I think it's, it's very clever. And you're right, it's a, it's a good case study about positioning in terms of your marketing and, and your pricing. Excellent. And as we always say, we rely so much on all of these apps to enrich our business lives and to enrich our personal lives. So it's always a pleasure to shout some of these out on the show. Pascal, we also know that a lot of the things that we rely on today wouldn't be around, wouldn't be happening if it wasn't from the pioneers from history who've created all sorts of things and gadgets for us to play with. So let's fire up the flux capacitor, set the controls for the past and move on to this week in history. In 1509, Henry VIII, at the age of 17, is crowned King of England in Westminster Abbey, London, becoming the second king from the House of Tudor. 
1868, the Scholes and Glidden typewriter is patented with its QWERTY keyboard, which is still the most popular keyboard layout in the world. In 1946, French designer Louis Réard unveils a daring two-piece swimsuit he called a bikini, inspired by the news of the US atomic test that took place off the Bikini Atoll in the Pacific Ocean earlier that week. In 1960, the first contraceptive pill is made available for purchase in the United States. In 1981, For Your Eyes Only, the 12th James Bond movie, the fifth starring Roger Moore and the first to be directed by John Glenn premieres at London's Audion Theatre. In 1989, the movie Batman premieres, directed by Tim Burton and starring Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson. The film also launched the Batmania phenomenon with over $750 million worth of merchandise sold. In 1997, US Air Force official released a 231-page report entitled The Roswell Report Case Closed, dismissing long-standing claims that an alien spacecraft crashed in Roswell, New Mexico almost exactly 50 years earlier. In 2010, the longest match in tennis history between American John Isner and he defeated Nicolas Mahout of France at Wimbledon and the match was lasted 11 hours and 5 minutes of play over 3 days and I think as a result of that they changed the whole structure of a tennis match now so that it can only go up to a certain number of games I remember I it, it well it was it something was just... ridiculous like 18, 85, 83 or something I remember it well it was you know because are they still playing <laughs> like, yeah <laughs> incredible now this isn't the earliest historical item that we've talked about no. on, on the show, but it is quite early. But I, I had to highlight Henry VIII. I, I don't know what it is about the Tudor era, Pascal. It's, it was always, always my favourite era of history. Um, and I just think that Henry VIII, the story of Henry VIII and his six wives, is just incredible. And let's face it, it's been turned into so many TV shows, so many films books, plays, whatever it is. So it is a very, very famous part of history. And again, you know, the fact that he had to divorce his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, um, and therefore fell out with the Catholic Church, mm. fell out with the, uh, pa the Pope, created an entire new sub-genre of religion, the, the UK Protestant uh, movement, I guess. So... He, he effectively changed history. And what is interesting is the character that really has inspired book authors, playwrights, filmmakers, and so on, because he, he, he was kind of conflicted. One, he was actually someone that was talented, that was thinking ahead in terms of changing and, and improving society in general. He was embracing the early signs of technology uh, and so on, but he was also just foul-tempered, as mm. we know, and had a very complicated love life, as we also know too well. Yeah, and and again, it, it's interesting. You know, one of my uh, favourite bands from the past is, is rock group, prog rock group, Jethro Tull, uh, which um, are famous for their sort of uh, flute style rock music, and uh, they have a, a piece of music which I thought was them 
doing a, a dedication to Henry VIII. The song's called King Henry's Madrigal, um, and it's actually quite a, a, a catchy piece of music. It's got a nice flute line to it, nice bass line, and quite a lot of um, sort of medieval-style drumming. Uh, but I actually found that when I researched that piece of music, I was shocked to find out that it wasn't actually written by Jethro Tull. It was actually written by Henry VIII himself, <laughs> and they were doing effectively a modern version of this. And and if you do go looking around on on uh, YouTube, you can find some traditional orchestras who've actually replicated the song as it would have been played in Henry VIII's time, using uh, lutes and um, flutes and, <laughs> and all of that sort of thing. So fabulous! Uh, I, I just absolutely love that period of history. And if you ever get asked in a quiz question the best way to remember the uh the what happened to the wives there's that little poem isn't there it's not even a poem it's just a series of words so it's divorced beheaded died divorce beheaded survived (laughs) now 1981 for your eyes only one of my favorite Roger Moore's movie for another reason, but I just think the story is wonderful. The the, the song is great as well. And um, John Glenn, who then went on to direct many more uh, James Bond movies, uh, it's just, you know, brilliant. And I think it also captured the 80s. You know, it was 81, but it, it, they, they switched it in terms of tone and style, which I think was a very, very smart move. Yeah, it's funny. Um, my wife and I have recently been having a mini Bond binge. Now, during the first lockdown, we actually watched all 24 James Bond films back to back. This time, we've picked what we are calling our selected gems from each of the eras. And for your eyes only, in my opinion, is probably the best of the Roger Moore Bond films. And, and you're right, they they went from the science fiction out of space, you know, complete and outrageous fantasy of Moonraker. And For Your Eyes only brought it all back down to earth and it was all proper spying again and proper espionage (laughs) and and that sort of thing. And you you just can't beat that. And some fabulous... uh, snow snow chases and, and scenery and that sort of thing. John Glenn, again, as you say, needs a shout out. I think he directed five Bond films. I think he, he, he directed the last three Roger Moores and both Dalton films, I think. So yeah, he is uh, very accomplished, very accomplished. And the last one I wanted to talk about, Pascal, is the Roswell report, you know, dismissing these claims that there had been a spacecraft crashed in Roswell and it had aliens in it. And you know, we've seen the footage, haven't we, whether it's fake or made up or whatever. But uh, do you think that this ever happened and it was indeed covered up or was the whole thing just an elaborate hoax? It's tricky. Uh, I, the, I think about it uh, often because it's uh, on TV, it makes the news. Uh, sometimes it's also part of a movie story. So one of my guilty pleasures on, on the Sunday afternoon, if I want to fall asleep, I watch Paul with uh, Nick Frost and Simon Pegg, mm. and they do visit the place. I do believe that there was testing of flying um, you know, aircraft aircraft flying in different ways. Mm. Um, and I, th- I do think that there was a crash. And, and of course, the, the army have been trying to keep hidden, not just the accident, but also the technology, because there's just um, too many witnesses. And I just find it tr- uh, interesting that someone would want to write such an extensive report to say it's not true. 
Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's almost too much of a signpost in the other direction, isn't it? Uh, I mean, fair attempt uh, on the title, you know, the Roswell Report, case closed, as in before you even read anything, as far as we're concerned, you know, nothing nothing happened. And I think, for me, something did happen, and this attempt to cover it up uh, as allow people to let their imagination run wild. As to whether or not there was um, aliens on, on, on the uh, on the spacecraft uh, amount, I don't, I don't think that was the case. No, I think you're right. I think, again, it's become just urban legend, hasn't it? Mm. That a lot of people will believe in the same way as some people believe that the COVID vaccine is injecting you with uh, magnetic particles um, at Bill Gates' behest. But hey, um, the last one, I wasn't actually going to mention this, but it, it is worth a little mention, is the bikini. Now, <laughs> uh, isn't it amazing that some, an iconic piece of, uh, of fashion design, I guess, is actually named after an island where they effectively tested a nuke i always think that's quite quite staggering well i think there was two things uh, the the designer wanted to be irreverent and mm. and almost flip it um maybe it's an early form of news jacking a term that i've not used for, <laughs> yeah. for a while uh, so obviously i fully approve of the design um as to the fact that that you know all these years later it's still a night that people will will know and and, and use uh, you know that's that's a long time. I, I don't know many items like the fashion that that, that have stood the test of time to the degree that this has. No, again, very very iconic. Another fabulous reminiscence of all these amazing things that took place in history that shape the world that we live in today. So, Pascal, I think it's time for us to give some creators shout outs. <music> And in this section of the show, Pascal, give a shout out to some of our creator friends. Now, normally they're within our network, sometimes slightly outside of our network. So, Pascal, who is in your shout out spotlight this week? So perhaps an unusual selection for this week, I would say maybe inspired by your also very unique selection of last week. But um, as you know, I've been in the UK 30 years. I did receive my settled status letter as well, so I am allowed to stay as a you know French national. But uh, 30 years later, I now um, partake in this national pastime of commenting on the weather a lot as most British citizens do and on my phone for the last few years or ever since I've had a smartphone I have this app called AccuWeather which I suspect is a portmanteau yet again of yes. accurate and weather and I was um, using it to know whether or not I should plan to do more gardening for the next few days and discovered by pure accident that they have a podcast series and that just threw me a little because I've known this app, as I mentioned, for many, many years. I simply tell me whether it's going to rain, tell me whether my hay fever is going to kick in. But I've never thought of them as a, as content creators. So they do have podcast series hosted by Din DeVore, Bernie Reno, even Myers and colleagues that keep changing. And the reason why I chose them is because I do believe that this is a wonderful source of inspiration for people who think that they operate in boring industry or you know they, they do what they do. What can I possibly talk about? What could possibly be interesting to others? So the way the team at AccuWeather have done this is through three uh, series, one called Everything Under the Sun, which are interviews mm -hmm. where they bring 
the idea of weather and a supplementary topic. So things like a return to the garden and summer pests. So they have experts in gardening to tell you how to deal with um, weeds and, and, and the likes. They have also things like the new lightning capital of America talking about what is happening and hurricanes and wildfire to explain how they happen and the science behind it. So they tend to be half-hour um, type in interviews. Then they have Weather Insider, which is a shorter form of podcasting with one kind of voice. But they explain weather terms. They explain the science behind weather, the work, the, the kind of the, the typical day for meteorologists, and provide you some weather news. And they have a third series, which may ring a bell, Roger, this date in weather history. <laughs> and, and they talk about events that have happened that have marked society. So, for example, in 1859, temperature reaches 56 degrees Celsius in Santa Clara, California. I mean, honestly, Gosh. that place is just doomed, isn't it, Santa Clara? <laughs> and then in 1939, this one is known in the UK, frogs fell from the sky during a rainstorm in Towbridge, England. So wow. these are the three things they do. I just thought... That's just clever. That's just the kind of things that I, I want to add to the creator shantans because I do think if you're listening and you've dismissed you, your company, your sector, your industry from a content creation point of view, just take a hint from those people here. The weather, you could argue, what is there to say about it? But here you go. Everything under the sun, interviews, weather insider, tell me more about your your kind of day-to-day. -day. And then you are part of an industry that has a history. So this date in weather history is also something you could look into. Oh, it's fantastic, isn't it? And, and you know, us Brits love talking about the weather, don't we? I mean, it's, it's it's usually the second thing that most people say to each other after how are you doing or hello. It's what's the weather like with you? So, uh, yeah, it's absolute genius the way that they've linked it mm. into that, uh, that AccuWeather uh, theme. I, I, I love that. Now, my shout out is uh, not somebody from my, my network, but uh, as you know, I occasionally do dive into looking at how to how to use humor especially in talks sometimes within articles and that sort of thing and i came across this podcast it's called the humorology podcast by a gentleman called paul boros or boris uh, apologies again if i've if i've uh, mispronounced that and this guy interviews some fairly heavyweight people from across the world but they're not the normal people you would ex expect to see on the sort of podcast that we listen to so it's not generally loads of marketing people so i've actually been delighted to hear completely different personalities so it's anybody from Ainsley Harriet who's a, a, wow. a fairly famous uh, UK chef uh, we've we've had uh, William Haig who was once the leader of the Tory party in the United Kingdom Alistair Campbell uh, who was one of Labour's great big sort of uh, Dominic Cummings style advisors from the past um, also Marcus Brigstock who's a, a improv comedian so you you, you You've got some real heavy hitters here, and they just analyze humor. You know, whether it's a political speech, whether it's an after dinner speech, they talk about how to talk at weddings, they talk about stand up, they talk about improv, they talk about humor in films, and, and it's just how the humor develops, either whether it's scripted or whether it's observational. And I've just found this something completely different. Now, I, I started listening to it purely to get ideas for 
adding humour to some of my talks and presentations, but actually it's now a podcast that I just listen to because it's good, if, if that makes sense. Super. Um, and, and one of the things that has, out of the British people that I've listened to, like the aforementioned Marcus Brigstock, uh, William Haig, Alistair Campbell, etc., there's a common theme that comes out that they think that one of the best storytellers, one of the best comedians that we've ever had is Billy Connolly. Ah. Um, and that his name comes up very often. And again, that prompted me to go off and watch a load of Billy Connolly videos. <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll probably use that as a, as a, as a different uh, content spotlight in the future. But yeah, the Humorology podcast, well worth a listen, whether you're, into humor or not it's just a damn good podcast well that's two great uh, options today and i think what we do this for our viewers and listeners is to, to inspire you to be just a bit more ambitious and daring with your own content but also to add to your podcast listening lists absolutely absolutely so pascal we are heading towards the end of the show and that means we are about to head into our favorite section of the show and that is film marketing. So our film this week is an incredibly funny film, Pascal. It's also a gangster film. It's an, an ensemble cast film. Uh, it's also one of those films that sometimes plays around with different timelines so that things happen in sequence and then sometimes they happen out of sequence. And... It's also one of those films where different stories sort of interweave with each other, where but some characters within the film actually never interact intentionally within the film. So this is Snatch from the year 2000, directed by Guy Ritchie and starring just about everybody else. Jason Statham, who's one of my favourite um, action heroes now. Stephen Graham, who's become incredibly famous recently with his Very. roles in Line of Duty and and the more recent uh, series Time about uh, a prison officer. Lenny James, who's gone on to be in Walking Dead and Fear the Walking Dead. Vinnie Jones, who used to be a footballer, now an actor. Brad Pitt, uh, doing the most incredible sort of Irish gypsy type um, accent you've ever heard alan ford who is the archetypal east end gangster uh Benico del toro uh who was actually in the aforementioned um james bond film the second james bond film with the timothy dalton directed by john glenn wow and uh dennis farina he's been in loads of things oh and, and i Ma just and love this guy <laughs> and mike reed who was a, was in eastenders for a long time so so wow snatch has got so many actors in it indeed and well done for remembering all of them and more jason flaming uh, the list i feel guilty i think we should mention everybody including matthew <laughs> Vaughan, the producer because uh, talk about a labor of love talk about pure indie filmmaking pure british grit in making the film happen but also now that we have the luxury of watching the making of and behind the scenes they had a blast making yeah. the snatch yeah and as, as you say, it, it is incredibly funny. I find the script is one of those pieces of perfection where there's almost not a line that doesn't advance the plot, but also it's so well written. 
And some of the humour, again, is visual humour. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to talk about many of the jokes because actually the language in the film is, is pretty <laughs> yes. explicit. Uh, pretty much every other word is an F word or a C word or something. Uh, but a lot of the humour, I find, actually comes out of the use of um, expletives because it, it, they use it in a way... I don't know what I'm trying to say, whereas it doesn't actually feel as offensive as it might do in in, in other circumstances. It's almost the the, the average lilt of using a feck, you know, as they do in Father Ted and so on. Yes. Uh, and I think you're right, the writing is such that when there is, you know, the swear word, which is why I'm sure Guy Ritchie, Matthew Vaughan, a priest, uh, 20 years later, they retain their 18th certificate from the yes. BBFC. The, yes. um, the, the the language is part and parcel of the character's identity and, of course, the world that they live in. What I love about the film is right. It's really clever. I mean, at first watch, one could say a bit dated, a bit this, a bit that. But actually, if you really st stop for a moment, I realize how complex the storylines are doing. You talk about the storylines and characters almost never quite meeting, although they cross mm -hmm. each other without realizing. Mm -hmm. That takes serious storyboarding. That takes serious scripting. I mean, I imagine they had a whiteboard with all the post-its, everything to make sure that they didn't mess it up. And as we're going to talk about in a moment, Guy Ritchie, I'd imagine being the director on, the, on this occasion, Matthew Vaughan, the producer, really claimed his visual storytelling style. And for me, is what we would say in French, is an auteur, is an author. The way he chooses to film, edit, and project you know, the story is unique to him. And it belongs to this generation of filmmakers who really make a difference. Yeah, and... Again, again, a lot of the humour often, often comes just from the expressions on the actors' faces. I mean, there's one scene quite early on, and I can talk about this because there actually isn't any dialogue. They're actually in a getaway car, oh, and one of, one of the one of the characters. Um, <laughs> is called Tyrone and That's he's right. a fairly sizable gentleman he's he's quite quite large and he's got a very thick leather coat on so so they're talking about being a getaway driver and this guy takes about 30 seconds to get out of the car because he's yeah. so big and and he's and his leather jacket's squeaking and rustling and and scraping against the side of the car but it's the expressions of the two other people in the car sort of this sort of combination of disbelief and you know you're supposed to be a getaway driver and look at you. You can't even and, get out of the car. And, you know, when I watch that scene, I'm absolutely rolling around, laughing my head off. And, you, you know, some people might think, what's funny about that? But it's the looks on these guys' faces. And it's things like that all the way through the film. You look at the people and the way they react to the situation, and that's funny in itself. It's very funny because, actually, pretty much every single character, with the exception of Mickey... Uh -huh. are just hapless, incompetent gangsters. Yes. Maybe Bricktop, um, we're going to come on to because you always need a good villain. But you've got Saul, Tyron, and Vincent who want to rob uh, people and, and be rich. And they, they have Tyron, who is the getaway driver, who can't get out of the car, can't even drive and park properly. So um, if you remember the scene where they want to rob the bookies and he parks really far away and say, well, yes. why are you not parked there? Because there's not enough room. He doesn't know how to do essentially a reverse car parking. Yeah. And so you've got this kind of lunacy of people. So in the case of um, Turkish, played by Jason Statham and Tommy with Stephen Graham, they want to become big, successful, wealthy boxing promoters, and they use illegal boxing as a shortcut. 
and unfortunately for them, enter the world of Bricktop, who eventually has something on them. Yes, yes. I mean, Bricktop is, uh, just to me, the archetypal sort of British villain. You know, he's he's got that just glorious Cockney accent, you know, real deep East End thug type accent. I, incidentally, um, Alan Ford went on to do a series of sketches as the East End thug really? in the uh, Orlando Illucci uh, TV series a, a number of years later. And, it, and he's basically Bricktop, but he's doing all sorts of different scenes. So that's always worth going to see. But the actor is as scary as hell. I mean, he's got his great big glasses on, yeah. which make his eyes look big. He's got the big teeth. And yeah. then combined with that Cockney accent, I just think the guy is as scary as that, hell. That delivery. And what is interesting about the film, so there's a moment where you you realise these are larger-than-life characters. This is almost a fantasy. You can imagine that Guy Ritchie had heard the stories tell, told in pubs, but yes. they'd been embellished and amplified by the 10th time he's heard the story. You know, the, the characters have changed. And I love this idea of being over the top. But there's a moment in the film where you get a massive slap in the face where it turns, where Bricktop essentially takes action. Mm. And I, I'm not sure whether we can say more if you have not seen Snatch, but you know the moment I mean where he literally he goes on to make sure that he, people understand that he's in charge. Yes. And that really shocked me because up to that point, there's an element of humor, comedy, almost fantasy. And then mm. suddenly you're brought back down to earth with this act of violence. I kind of go, crap, this guy is dangerous. Yeah, absolutely right. And I also find that so the, the directional style is quite intriguing as well. Um, you know, quite a lot of things actually happen off screen. Um, there's, the, there's one bit um, where you've got Bullet Tooth Tony and he's got um, <laughs> his, uh, uh, the accomplice is a guy who comes over from America with um, Dennis Farina. And, and this this big guy saying, it's okay, I'll take him on, I'll take him on, and I'll beat him up. And then literally the next scene is them in the back of the car with this guy who was just saying, I'll take him on. He's got blood all over his face, and he's obviously taken him on and had the crap beaten out of him. But all of that happened off screen. I don't know whether it was ever filmed or whether it was intentionally like that, but you think, oh, Guy Rich is such a good storyteller, he decided we didn't actually need to see yeah. that bit. And um, so let's go back to, to that, Roger. Forgive me. The 20 years ago, yeah. if you watch the first 10 minutes of Snatch in there, you've got all the editing skills and transition skills that vloggers are claiming they have invented. And I'm sorry to say <laughs> for all of you, 2000, at least to six, six years before uh, YouTube, Guy Ritchie was doing the transitions, the panning, the cutting, the rotation, everything that you, forgive me, younger people out there think you have invented. Um, if you want to be good at video editing, watch a Guy Ritchie movie. But would you agree that the whole opening sequence after the, the robbing of, of the um, sort of bank, is it, is a, I suppose, a store, and yeah. then the, the transition to the different characters and the freeze framing and so on is just spectacular. And again, would have been very hard to do in 2000. Yeah, and um, he's, uh, one thing that stands out for me is his use of monitors. You know, in the in the oh, early yeah, yeah. in the early scene you've just described there, where the um, where the baddies are going into the jewelry store or whatever it is, 
the first few scenes actually take place on monitors, don't they? And he and he pans down to each monitor, and each monitor is obviously a security monitor um, monitoring a different part of the store. So you see them walking through, you see them in the lift, you see them coming through the door. But throughout the film, there are monitors. Now, the, I, I, again, the aforementioned scene where you said Bricktop goes and starts getting very violent. You know, there's a there's a scene where he walks into the room, but in the background, you can see him actually on a monitor before he enters the scene. And it's it's just little things like that. that yeah, yeah. Just genius. It's part of the language. It's, it's a wonderful leitmotiv. What I love as well, um, what Guy Ritchie did in this film, is show with limitation comes ingenuity and innovation. Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. many of the things that you see, it was because they were stuck for uh, short of time, short of budget. Uh, So the jump cut, which can be deemed to be quite severe. Um, Mm -hmm. And and for me, it's back to this idea of, you know, it's a fantasy tale and you, you can't afford to do that. But I was also reminiscing about this idea. Can you imagine if someone get in touch with you and say, I've written this film, I would like you to be Frankie Four Fingers. Yes. I've written this film, but I'd like you to be Boris the Blade. I mean, just that. You don't have to read the script. You just agree to it, wouldn't you? Yeah, Doug the Head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's just it's just joyous. Cousin Avi. Avi! Oh, I, I absolutely love it. And, and you know, even, even you know, every time Avi goes across the Atlantic, you get this tiny little set of jump cuts of him sitting down in the Concorde, knocking back his, uh, his short, uh, having his passport stamped, and then he's at the other end. You know, it's yep. Just, I just love and, that. And once again, a, a visual language that had not been seen in that way, that was pre, uh, you know, internet. I mean, internet has been around for four or five years at that time. But yeah. again, just into people, this is what you can do. And and, and I think um, we're very lucky, not only to have that for me, a British production, but also to have it to refer back to because there's so much that this movie can do. We're going to talk about the marketing in a moment, but also for me, to be inspired as a video creator, this movie has it all. Yeah, and we we probably have to mention Brad Pitt. Of course. Um, obviously, major star even at the time. Uh, and he plays this character who has this sort of jumbled up language, which is a cross between Irish. It's probably a little bit of um, R- R- uh, Romanian gypsy language as well. And and he's, he's totally and utterly incoherent when he talks, unless you listen incredibly carefully to how he, what he actually says. Uh, and that, again, there's so much humour in that because most of the other characters in the film haven't a clue what he's talking about. And yet, they then base their next set of actions on what he said, and, and you think you didn't, you don't know what he said yet. You're going to go ahead and do something on the back of it. It's it's genius. And back to what I was saying earlier, you realise at the very end that Mickey, albeit you could could have been uh, thought of a character that doesn't really get it, was yeah. the smartest of all of them. <laughs> Absolutely right. Yeah, he played. Absolutely, everybody. So we we need to talk about the marketing because we've mm-hmm. we've talked heck a lot heck a lot about the actual film itself. Again, it's it's just over twenty years old. Probably not as massively overly marketed film. Uh, but what what do you think about the posters? So that was interesting. So we know that this was premiered in August two thousand, mm. then had a UK Europe release in September. It was a very 
long drawn out affair to get a movie released internationally. So much so that in 2001, the US and many other territories discovered Snatch for the first time. And that was almost like a second form of, of marketing, mm -hmm. which led to this very interesting uh, effect where when the movie was first marketed in 2000, there was a very distinctive style, both from the, from the movie, but also from the poster. You may remember you had that kind of dual tone style. Yes. It had this kind of hazardous, almost kind of chemical symbol. Uh, it felt almost like a warning uh, poster. And you had the characters there standing, looking quite menacing, uh, looking directly at, at the audience. And then the following year, they went for more of an international poster, which I think lost a lot of its identity and charm. It, it was very much the characters, but in full color. And my issue with that, although I, I do understand why they did it, it's it doesn't match because there is a color identity in the film, particularly with the final fact, which uh, you know is matched by the original poster. Um, so, what did you make of it yourself? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I think the the uh, original poster is so much more evocative of the film itself. As you say, it has the right color palette. It focuses in on well, it tells you the names of the characters as well, which is very important. Brick top Turkish. <laughs> bullet tooth that sort of thing i think that that's very very important and it gets across immediately what you're gonna you, what you're gonna get from the film from its tone yeah i think that the the original the the newer uh, poster which has been used now for the 20th um, wedding anniversary 20th anniversary of the movie and now the 4k release it just feels it feels too much like big short and all the other type american films but it's outside the, it's out of the hands of the of the producers what they did do at the time they had an official website which may seem like a, a given but this is 2000 roger so yeah um, sadly the, the website is no longer uh, available but there was enough articles to praise actually the use of the website to, to again match the style of the original poster and the style of the film. So what you would do is go online, and it was probably a flash website, I'd imagine, where the um, the, the the snatch word would start to fade out, dissolving mm -hmm. to show the the poster, and then you could click to watch and download the trailer, teaser trailer, and some scenes with the main characters. And they've carried on marketing the film, really, for the for the whole of the 20 years, haven't they? Um, you know, I see videos pop up on YouTube all the time. You know, there was, there was an interview with Alan Ford uh, recently, which I saw on there. And um, Guy Ritchie himself has done a recent reminiscence, hasn't he, of it's 20 years since Snatch. And he, and he goes into quite a lot of detail as to how they made the film and where the ideas came from and, and how he directed it. And maybe that's all a first observation, which is one could argue that the marketing campaign lacked, uh, you know, kind of pace and and wasn't really grabbing the audience by the scruff the way the film might do. But then on the reverse, yes, you're absolutely right. For the last 20, 21 years, people have been talking about Snatch, whether that is newspapers, for example, doing articles to give you a tour of the different pubs and location used you know, on Snatch. You could have you on pub crawl and be where Turkish was or where you know, Cousin Avi waited you know, for, for the diamonds to be given to him. And then there was um, a documentary made in 2001 for the uh, international audience. And then there was different versions. You, you expected DVDs, Blu-ray, and so on. But each time the, the actors, the producers, 
producers, even the costume designers were being interviewed to reminisce uh, about the film. And 20 years is a long time, and yet people keep talking about it, keep wanting to look at it. And they, in the process, therefore, gain new viewers. And there is now a trend on YouTube, you may have noticed, of people doing first reactions videos. Yeah, and, and again, the aforementioned Bricktop as well, such an iconic character. And, and again, his lines in the film, I can't quote because pretty much everything he says has an F word or a C word in it. But there's a there's a piece of uh, unofficial um, snatch related stuff if you go looking for it on YouTube, and that is it's called Brick Vader, and somebody, some genius, has actually taken scenes from Star Wars and actually dubbed Bricktop's dialogue over Darth Vader. Um, and it is absolute genius and absolutely hilarious to the point of you will be rolling around on the floor laughing your <laughs> head off. It is just so funny what this person's done. But that's what you can do with a character which not only is frightening in his delivery of his words, but the words themselves are just absolutely crafted to per perfection. And another thing I'll say as well is whether you've bought the the original DVD or the Blu-ray, or hopefully these will be on the 4K release as well, is watch the deleted scenes. Uh, the, on, on the, certainly on the DVD, there's about 12 minutes of deleted scenes. And some of those deleted scenes, the, the dialogue is equally as incredible and well-written as the, as the scenes that made it into the actual film. And you know that Richie's cut these scenes purely from the point of view of pacing, but those those scenes are worth watching as deleted scenes because they are just as good as what remained in the movie. And, and some of the, some of them, I'm thinking, oh, this is just joyous. You should have left it in. I know I know why he didn't, but they are good. So you know, most sometimes deleted scenes in films, you know, why they were deleted because they were rubbish. This some of these deleted scenes are joyous to watch. So there are a number of lessons that can be derived from a movie that people keep talking about 20 years later so back to my earlier comment perhaps a you know a simple marketing campaign that didn't achieve a great deal but my god the payoff 20 years later people are still talking about it so for me i'll, I'll begin roger lesson number one i'm going to say um almost kind of adopt a visual language from yes. the, the choice of colors the chocks choice of, of poster design the way in which you've gone to go for the opening credits but a visual language which is all about the moving images the color palettes the texture and and stick with it throughout because uh, i think that'll serve you well but will really really make the audience believe that you put put the, the work in so that would be my first lesson what about you roger yeah i i just i just think that um it's it's experimentation with t with storytelling, isn't it? It's that the way that they dovetail the different stories together, and and that takes a lot of planning. So you know, you know that I'm a big fan of storytelling, whether that's in marketing copy or whether in presentations and speeches. But you can't just rock up and tell a story. You've got to plan it. You've got to script it, and you've got to get the nuances. And I think that if you watch Snatch, you'll realise just how well crafted these stories are, and that's why the film works so well. For me, the lesson number two, if there is one, would be strong and clearly defined characters mm. and memorable 
quotable dialogues and discussions. Now, I'm very aware that this may be a stretch for me from a business point of view, but actually if you want to do case studies, if you want to do product demonstrations, even you know, sales promo, think about you know the the messaging. Think about maybe the writing. Are you creating copy that you know is memorable, that is repeatable by your future customers? Um, so I'm sure you're not you're not going to disagree. But do you have maybe some some quotes or some moments in Snatch that are your, oh, your favorites? Gosh, gosh, I mean it's it's just hard to pick ones that don't involve swearing. But obviously, <laughs> feed them to the pigs, Errol, um, is is one of Bricktop's uh, lines, and I mean it sounds. You know, it sounds quite humorous when said out of context, but this guy kills people and feeds them to pigs as a way of getting rid of the evidence. You know, it's, um, it's, uh, um, What's he called? Jason Statham's character, Turkish, towards the end, they're in the caravan, and you know that their their options are limited. And he says, "You you tell me how to control a mad gypsy, and and I'll tell you how to control an unhinged pig feeding gangster." <laughs> I mean, the, these things are just 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 joyous. I love the two girls as well, yes. um, who work in um, Doug the Heads. You know, they're they're twins, obviously, in real life. And and just the dialogue between yeah, Dad, you told us. Yes, Dad, you told us. And they just repeat each other's lines. It's it's glorious. Uh, oh, the, I, I, it's every line is quotable. Pascal. Pretty much, you know, which which is hard. I mean, for me, um, cousin Avi had I mean stitches back in the days in cinema, and now. So do you know when he makes a decision to go to London, and then yes. his um, kind of accomplices look at him weirdly. See, no, London, you know, fish, chips, cup of tea, bad food, worst weather, Mary effing Poppins, London, you know, and he's just. Yeah. Yeah. Tells this, but there's one at the end where. <laughs> sorry, I'm laughing because I can see the scene where they're trying to understand where the diamond is, yeah. and they've managed to kind of literally uh, trap Vincent, Saul, and Tyrone into their, their into a room. And he says, "You know, I'm getting a heartburn, Tony. Do something terrible. Do something terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's this uh, look in the dog. What do you mean, look in the dog? Yes. Op open the dog up. Well, it isn't a tin of beans, is it? You know, oh, that's a bit rich, isn't it? You know, it's funny. Bullet Tooth Tony is perfectly happy to shoot people, but to not, carve not, people not to up with a sword. But, you know, it's crossing a line when you have to hurt back, the dog. Back to the humour, you know, <laughs> whereby B B Bullet Tooth Tony is a killer. But he's a big fan of Madonna. He's got lucky stars blasting yes. you know, through the speakers yes. on his phone. So yes. uh, we, we <laughs> let's move on to the next lesson. And for me, uh, this is inspired by a comment that Guy Ritchie gave during a documentary for lesson number three, is to be a counterexample of the current trend. So he took a view of what the world thought of British film production. And he realized they were either costume drama or kind of sad, depressing social commentaries. And you say, I'm going to flip it and be a counterexample and show them what else we can do. So back to your viewers and listeners, take a look at what is happening and what is the norm in your sector industry and flip it, change the style and the genre and become a counterexample. Yeah, and I guess lesson number four, and we've already alluded to this with the videos that have appeared on YouTube from Guy Ritchie and others over the course of the last 20 years, is to always revisit your, your content and get new reactions to it you know updated reviews updated reactions updated perspectives and that way you can keep your content alive and current 
Yeah, superb, superb, Roger. Um, if I may, just because uh, I love it so much, when I was watching, um, when I went to the cinema for the first time to see Snatch, I was in London. I went to the Prince Charles, so UK and London-based viewers and listeners will know a very special uh, cinema, Prince Charles, for real film goers. And it was this very, very odd double bill of Daylight with Sylvester Stallone yes. and Snatch. Yes. Why not? And I think you paid very little money. And I sat there. Daylight was okay. And then I'm sat there watching Snatch. And I knew that I would enjoy the film from the visually from the opening credits. But I knew this is exactly the kind of thing I wanted to watch when quite early on, the character of to uh, Tommy has bought a gun. Yes. And Turkish discovers he has a gun. And you ask him, why do you have a gun? And Tommy say, it's for protection. And yes. Turkish says, protection from what? The Germans? And the I just Germans. laughed out loud. <laughs> and I thought, this is going to be a blast. <laughs> he's in, and again, that's another repeated motif that comes up through the because he says the Germans <laughs> a number of times during the film. Pascal, yeah. we could talk about Snatch all day. We and could. we've already uh, talked about it a lot today which just goes to show what a great film it is and what marketing lessons we can gain from it but we've come to the end of another episode of two geeks and a marketing podcast episode 46 thank you everyone for listening thank you everybody for watching do please give us some feedback leave some comments on the youtube channel talk to us on twitter we do appreciate anything that you give us as feedback it helps us to shape the show for the future that's it from us for this week so until next time go out there and make sure that your marketing is done right i was roger edwards and he was pascal fintoni yeah.